Welcome to Bullshift the Podcast. My name is John DeGuy. I'm the author of the book Bullshift and the host of the podcast. Bullshift the Podcast talks about behavioral finance as it pertains to individual investors and the decisions they have to make. My guest this week is Ellen Roseman. Ellen is the personal finance journalist who advocates for consumers. And boy, oh boy, does she ever. She wrote personal finance columns for 20 years for the Toronto Star until 2019. And before that, she spent 20 years at the Globe and Mail as a consumer columnist and money editor at the Report on Business. She's now a contributing writer at Canadian Money Saver magazine, and she also hosts the Canadian Money Saver podcasts. Ellen is the author of seven books and is the former chair of FAIR Canada, which is the Foundation for the Advancement of Investor Rights, which is a registered nonprofit charity that advocates for investors. And she was on the board of directors at FAIR for 12 years. Ellen, it is such a pleasure to have you on today. How are you? Good, thanks. How are you, John? Pleasure to be on your podcast. And I know you've been on our podcast, and we'd like to talk to you again about your new book, which is quite interesting. And good. I like the fact that it's just 200 pages. You know, <laughs> some of your previous books went on for a while. Yeah. There's a limit to how much we can take, but it's well done and very well designed. And I'm glad you found a good publisher in Dundurn. Yeah, thanks. Uh, you're, you're right. Dundurn has been a fantastic partner. So uh, you're the star of the show today. So I want to talk to you and about you and about all of the wonderful things that you've done. You've been a journalist for pretty much your entire working career. And um, I'm wondering if you could maybe begin by, by telling us how you got started. What made you become an advocate for consumers and a fighter for, for what, all the things that they need to worry about? Well, I, I, I um, went to McGill University and studied, I got an a, a honors BA in philosophy. Mm -hmm. And it was a four-year degree. And along the way, I joined the McGill Daily, which then came out five days a week. And I wasn't even interested in writing for it. I just wanted to hang out, be in the office, maybe do some clerical work. But I knew after I did the first article that was assigned to me, and I only did it because no one else was around and <laughs> they were desperate. I loved writing journalistic uh, articles. Mm -hmm. I didn't really love writing in high school, especially when they wanted us to write compositions about you know, proverbs and stuff like that. But when it was real, and I was covering it. I just loved it. And I never thought I'd be a full-time um, journalist as a career. But then once I got my master's degree in philosophy at U of T, I was stuck. I didn't know what else to do. I'd struck out on my first uh, job goal, which was to get a job in Canadian book publishing. And I had a connection to McLean Hunter, which was a big publisher of business magazines mm -hmm. and uh, consumer magazines. And I got a job there. And uh, I remember they asked me during one of the interviews, who's your hero? And because I was going to university in the late 1960s and the boomer generation was very much involved with protesting the Vietnam War and all kinds of other issues, I said, Ralph Nader. Mm -hmm. I really liked what he was doing on the consumer front. And he uh, was making huge inroads with Ford and some of these other companies getting to make their cars a lot safer. And then he started spreading out and criticizing the government and doing all kinds of investigative stuff. And he's still out there. I get his newsletter and he does a podcast and he's still very upset about the extent of corporate power in the U.S. and how the consumer view, the consumer view is very, very rarely uh, recognized or heard because it's just very hard to stand up. 
yeah. against these big companies. That's your that's your wording. Part, Stand up. It, it is. Yeah. Can, can I, it's funny, Ellen, how you're mentioning this because there are two or three things that are that you've touched on already that are almost identical to me. When I was in high school, I enjoyed writing, but I never, ever, ever thought I would be writing books. So I've only written three, and you've written seven. But it's the same sort of thing. Some people, you ask them, oh, you, you write books. Oh, you, you've probably always wanted to do it. No, I, I, I write book as a cathartic way of getting things off my chest. But it's not because I had this great desire to be a writer once upon a time. So that's number one. Number two, when I started in university in first year at Guelph, uh, who came on campus, but Ralph Nader, and who was there in the front row listening to him speak, but me. Uh, so I, I you know, was there, and, and again, not quite the same age as you, but, but very much on, in line with, uh, with that line of thinking. And then third, when I did my graduate work, which for me was in, uh, at uh, Carleton in Ottawa, I was doing a graduate degree in public administration, and, and we were doing uh, research into various, various things. And my first job as a co-op program in, in, in public admin was to sit in and, and, and do briefing notes about uh, uh, the GST, but also to do some research with regard to things like credit card costs and how much are, are consumers paying and that sort of thing. So I didn't realize it, but I, in my entire formative uh, existence, I was sort of becoming a consumer advocate too. So I'm, I'm very much like you. I It wasn't planned, it just sort of, sort of uh, emerged from the woodwork uh, as a result of uh, whittling away and trying to figure out uh, how things work. So that's, you know, it's funny because I didn't know some of those things about you. So, and maybe you didn't know some of those things about me. So that's interesting as well. Um, when you decided to move uh, to the business section in the late 1980s and, and you, you basically decided to take on the mutual fund industry, uh, what was that like? And, and, and can you tell me a little bit about that stage of your career? I had covered the consumer industry uh, at the Globe and Mail from 75 until 87. That's when he moved to the business section. Yeah. And I'd really kind of felt that the, the, the consumer movement in the uh, early days of my uh, career at the Globe was quite active. There was a national consumer rights organization called the Consumers Association of Canada. They had conventions, they had expertise in all different kinds of areas. There were ministers of consumer affairs at both the federal level and the provincial level, and that's more or less gone these days. There's some kind of consumer organization uh, in government, but not a big one and not very prominent. And uh, I just felt that I wanted to be with something that was growing rather than declining. And uh, the Globe and Mail had a very big business section, very well staffed, and I didn't know a heck of a lot about business. I mean, I was covering business from the consumer side of things, but they wanted someone to cover personal finance. And I knew that I could cover aspects of it, but the stock market was really kind of a mystery to me. And uh, uh, I decided to take the Canadian securities course, which is a course that uh, anybody has to take if they wanna sell stocks and bonds and so on and ETFs in Canada. So um, I took that. And then the mutual fund industry was on the rise because interest rates had fallen. There was a uh, stock market uh, crash in uh, October 1987 wasn't a big deal, but uh, interest rates had fallen quite a bit. So Canadians who relied on GICs and remember, I still remember covering Canada savings bonds when they came out one year with an interest rate of 19.75 percent. That yeah. was inflation. We think our inflation is bad, but boy, the inflation in the early 70s was really something else. And um, I um, wanted to know what was going on with mutual funds. So I started looking into it 
And I found that the industry was not really consumer oriented at all. Mm-hmm. They big managers of mutual funds. We had investors group, we had McKenzie financial, we had Templeton. They sold to the public, usually through a network of brokers and dealers across Canada. And they figured that their brokers and dealers were their clients. Mm-hmm. They didn't really want to deal with the public in any way. They, they put out a, few, a little bit of advertising, but mostly they figured that it was the um, brokers and dealers that counted. So they had big events for the brokers and dealers, lots of uh, food, lots of drinks, often vacations that they paid for. And it was just at the time that the securities commissions in various provinces, it's a provincial responsibility, started looking at this and thinking, this is people's retirement savings that we're talking about. And are they getting the best advice from these brokers and dealers who are busy, you know, uh, uh, just enjoying the the wonderful, you know, um, rebates in effect that they were getting from the fund manufacturers for selling the product. Mm-hmm. It's like what you have in the grocery store, you know, at the end of the aisle, you see a lot of things on sale. And sometimes you assume they're on sale and they're not, they're at regular price, but the food manufacturer has paid for that special display that will catch your eye and make you think that you're getting a bargain. Wow. So the Securities Commission started saying, well, no more vacations in sunny places. You have to have your um, conferences with the brokers and dealers in Canada, which really meant, you know, probably some cold weather somewhere. And they started really looking at what was going into mutual funds. And then a consumer advocate who was an Ontario Securities Commission member at that point, Glorianne Stromberg, did a report for the OSC saying that the industry was really bad in terms of serving the customer and needed radical changes. Her report was terrific, but way too revolutionary for the industry. And the banks weren't even as prominent mutual funds as they are now, but lobbying, lobbying, lobbying kept most of it from being enacted. There were little changes here and there. And then a few years later, the federal government asked her to do a similar report, which she did. So we're seeing some changes, but this is like 20, 25 years that it's been in the making. So Florian's first report came out in 1995. So that's almost 30 years. Yeah, right. And as I learned from being on Fair Canada, securities law reform just takes forever because they ask for comments from the industry. And then they get a bunch and then they go through it all and they write something and then they ask for more comments from the industry. And the industry keeps coming back and every single uh, industry comment usually is written by lawyers and they've got a lot of expertise on their side. And then the consumer voice, when you'd hear it, was usually uh, a single person who'd had a terrible experience and was writing from the fact that they couldn't stand what they had learned on their own. So that was just an individual thing. And then there were some uh, people who were quite critical of the industry, but they were like individuals. So you didn't have an organized group. And that's why I was so happy when Fair Canada was organized in around the 2008 um, financial crash to be professional and to operate across Canada in English and French and to employ securities lawyers who would write in the same way that the industry people would write so they'd be taken more seriously. It's funny how you talk about the sort of the bad old days of the Wild West of the mutual fund industry. One of the one of the uh, comments that I am fond of uh, using a fair bit is something that was written by uh, Stephen Levitt. So Levitt and Dubner wrote the Freakonomics books and uh, they have a phrase that that they use as the unifying theme for for this for their second book for Super Freakonomics and it was their publisher pushed them to say so you know, you've got all this stuff, it's fantastic stuff, it's really neat, 
but I, I, you know, what's the theme? Like, what's the theme of the book? And because it's all, it's all these disparate stories, and they put their heads together, and they realized in the end that the theme was people respond to incentives. And if there was one way to sort of uh, look at the way the mutual fund industry worked maybe 20 years ago or 25 years ago, was that advisors were responding to incentives and, uh, and, and all that that entails. And, and you know, I don't want to cast aspersions, but there's obviously room for, for incentives to morph your, your priorities. And, and that's a concern for anyone uh, as a consumer of, of anything. And it doesn't have to be investing products. It could be cars. It could be, you know, it, it could be tobacco. It could be alcohol. It could be anything. I'm wondering if you could maybe talk a little bit about how there were, co comparing and contrasting your work as a consumer advocate pre-finance and your work uh, writing about the finance industry. What were the similarities? What were the differences? Did you find uh, similar inequities or were there, were there things that were just completely different? Um, I, I wrote a lot about safety in the days I when I was a consumer reporter, things like baby cribs and car seats and yeah. uh, car safety uh, and quality. Uh, one of my heroes in Canada who was a Naderite himself, Phil Edmonston, he wrote the Lemonade Car Guides year after year after year, and he started a group called the Automobile Protection Association. And it was about protecting yourself from automobile companies. And uh, he he started a Rusty Ford demonstration back in the early 70s in Montreal. And I covered him a lot because he was doing really good work and, again, getting Transport Canada to follow a lot of the initiatives in the U.S. that Ralph Nader had uh, started in the U.S. He died recently. Um, he was in his 70s, and uh, he, uh, in later life, became uh, a member of parliament from uh, Quebec, and he was the first NDP member ever elected in Quebec. So he was a great role model. I was, I was upset that there wasn't more, you know, information about his death, but uh, he, uh, he, he did a great job for, for Canadian. In the financial field, well, we did have uh, um, some books that were written. Uh, there was a guy called Don Lawrence Reynolds who did a few books about, you know, one was called The Naked Investing. About, yeah, but I, why I, everyone makes money from your RSP except you, mm -hmm. which was a great title. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, Danny Stoffman, who was a former Toronto Star journalist, he did a book about mutual funds and how everybody was getting rich from the mutual funds. And the Canadian consumer didn't really understand how they worked because it was all done in terms of the way securities used to be regulated, which was fine print, lots of legalese, hard to get the information. Somebody would hand it to you at some point, but it was so long and involved in such fine print that you would never read it. And then when you had a problem and you said, you know, you didn't give me good advice, they would say right away, but you should have read this. It's in the prospectus, which is 180 pages long, and it's in yeah. eight-point font on the bottom of page 53. But, you know. That's right. And you were talking about credit cards and interest rates back when you were at Carleton and public policy. That was a senator, I remember. Her name was Bengay, I think, who kept introducing bills to try and bring down the cost of credit card interest rates because they were they've been forever, as I remember, over 20 percent, you know, 18 to 22 percent. And then in the fine print, which they only send you when they send you the card and fine print probably goes in the garbage at that point. They can raise your rate by like up to 25 or 27 percent if you miss two minimum payments in a year. And how many people know that? If they knew that, they probably would make sure to do their minimum payments. It's, uh, it's funny. Can you maybe other than um, this uh, NDP member from Quebec and, and Ralph Nader 
and, and maybe John Lawrence Reynolds. Do you have any other people that you would consider to be your heroes and role models? Um, David Chilton is terrific. He uh, wrote The Wealthy Barber way back when, and uh, it, it uh, created a huge career for him traveling around the country. Uh, and he would always tell the truth. Um, I think that, you know, he could have rested on his laurels with The Wealthy Barber, which came out in the late 80s. But at a certain point, he said, probably out of date, and I don't feel like updating it because it was written as a novel. So you can't really update a novel. So he took it off the market, which is a brave thing to do. And then he decided to write a sequel called The Wealthy Barber Returns 21 Years Later or something, Chastened. I forget. He had a great subtitle and got a lot of people to read it and give comments on it and kept rewriting it till he liked it a lot and then created another you know round of publicity and these days he is now a spokesperson for the Royal Bank uh estate planning and mm -hmm. he's doing a lot of videos on how to do estate planning right and often contradicting what most people think like should you make your your family members your immediate family members the executor of your will mm -hmm. may may not be a good idea why don't you look elsewhere so he's he's willing to say what he thinks, which is not always the group think. And right. in your book, as I've I read it, you're very much against group think and herd mentality and all that stuff. Right. Uh, I'm wondering, you've spent many years as the chair and vice chair and board director at Fair Canada. And uh, I'm wondering if you could maybe tell me about what you've learned from that advocacy work and fighting to support to keep Fair alive. It was very tough. Uh, it was started by Ermano Pascudo, who used to be the uh, executive director at the Ontario Securities Commission. And he, like uh, I did, realized that there was such an imbalance between uh, industry uh, lobbying and comments on various initiatives versus consumer lobbying and comments that he wanted to create this organization that had a better chance of being heard. And he was lucky because he got to what is now IROC, well, IROC is now merging with MFDA. Well, one of the regulatory organizations. So it, was, it would have been the IDA then? Yes, which wasn't a regulatory organization. It was more like a, yeah, an association. Yeah. And he got them to give 3.75 million, which was a great you know, way to start the organization. And he spent it very carefully and kept the organization going for quite a long time with that money. But then you know, he had a staff of two or three people and a building and all that kind of stuff, an office. He needed more money, and where could he go? So I um, tried large corporations, and when I was chair, we went to a few, uh, you know, insurance, mutual funds. Uh, it was very hard to get money from anybody because they really didn't want to support this. And we found even when we were hiring that sometimes these securities lawyers didn't really want to work for Fair Canada because it might mean that they couldn't get jobs later on in big companies. Uh, so we uh, did get the Ontario Securities Commission uh, under Chair Howard Wetston to support it for a while. Uh, and he said it made his job easier because if he could say that FAIR was doing all this work and they were following what FAIR was saying, that it, it paved the way for the OSC to get more involved in these issues. Um, then we found Stephen Jaroslawski, who is an enormously wealthy Canadian portfolio manager, now retired, he's in his mid-90s. He gave us a couple of million dollars, but then said we had to uh, um, match it twice. So we had to raise six million in order to keep that two million or, or raise another four million to keep the two million. And we tried like for 
five or six years and just couldn't get anywhere. The Ontario Securities Commission did give a million of that, but the other million was just impossible to raise money from. Mm -hmm. uh, so he's he's left the organization. We have now uh, someone, uh, JP Bureau, who's running it now, and he's very good. But financing consumer activism in Canada is almost impossible. Mm -hmm. Luckily, because of COVID, and uh, I don't want to say anything good about COVID, but people working at home now are not uh, a big controversy anymore. Uh, many of these organizations, like they're, everybody's working remotely at home and using Zoom, and we found that it works pretty well, and we can bring down our costs quite a lot if we do that. I'm saying we because I was on it, the board until December of last year. <laughs> And I'm still very proud of it, and uh, I think it's doing great work. So, uh, it's it's funny because so many of the people that you've mentioned, so um, yourself and and Hermano and Preet Banerjee, who's a friend, and so many other yes. people that are involved uh, at Fair are people that that are friends of mine as well. So you know, there's again, there's a real kinship. So that's it's nice to hear you tell the stories and, and to sort of think about the the people and reminiscing going down memory lane. So it's all very nice. Yes, uh, Preet Banerjee was a friend of Hermano's uh, and Hermano started chasing him many, many years ago to, to take over Hermano's job. He didn't want to do it anymore. And Preet said, no, Preet said, no, Preet said, no. And then we started chasing him to be a director. And finally he did decide to be a director and he was terrific. And now he's the chair, even though he's moved to England and he's yeah. working uh, exactly. uh, remotely. But he is also one of Canada's great communicators, very smooth, very articulate. Uh, people love his YouTube stuff. He was in there on YouTube. He's got over 100,000 subscribers, which is terrific. Yeah. And his financial um, uh, videos are about everyday things like, you know, does it pay to use Uber Eats? And uh, just looking at common things that people are looking at. And he does them in a very professional way. And I'm really proud of what his career has turned into. You me both. You've spent almost 20 years teaching a beginner's investing course at the U of T, the University of Toronto, and you've been hosting an investment club made up of your former students. Uh, did you find it hard to get ordinary Canadians to understand the world of investing products and the choices that, in, that, that they have to make with advisors and whether or not they've saved enough for their goals and all of those sorts of ancillary considerations as, that are part and parcel with meaningful personal finance? It is. Uh, some people just gobble it up. Others find there's just a little bit too much technical stuff and they, they can't wrap their eyes or their arms around it. Uh, when I started, mutual funds were the big uh, uh, investment that everyone used in order to retire on a million dollars, which was the, the minimum we thought for a good retirement. And uh, try to explain mutual funds to someone, especially the kind of mutual funds which are thankfully disappearing that had a deferred sales chart. Mm -hmm. So this was McKenzie Financial. After the 1987 stock market crash, they realized that you had to be kind of sneaky in order to sell mutual funds and pay the salespeople at the same time. So what they did was that they told everybody, when you buy this mutual fund, there's absolutely no charge. And uh, as long as you hold it for seven years, you will never pay even when you sell it. And uh, salesperson uh, won't get uh, any any commission. But this wasn't really clear because most people would sell out way before the seven-year mark, often because the performance wasn't any good. And the salesperson would get a commission when you bought it and something later. Uh, and it was just like very confusing. And uh, I, I saw you mentioned in the book about the MER, the management expense ratio. 
even if it's on the high side for mutual funds, say two and a half to three percent a year, doesn't sound so bad. It sounds pretty small. Mm -hmm. So you always have to get someone to show you one of those compounding charts and show that, you know, the way it compounds over the years, you end up with uh, up to half your return goes to the mutual fund manufacturer and the salesperson. Larry Bates and Beat the Bank, he's on the Fair Canada board too. He did a terrific job in getting that message across and he still is. He's very yeah. active on, yeah. on social media. And what did he call it? The T-Rex. T-Rex, yeah. 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 There is also yeah. a friend, so T-Rex it's great. Yeah. It's uh, it's fine. Just a small clarification with the back end loaded with the deferred sales charge. If you sold in less than so, if you if you bought a mutual fund on a deferred sales charge, the 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 registrant, the MFDA reg, uh, advisor or the securities advisor, uh, would get paid in the next week or two, uh, and it was typically about five percent. But if you sold, uh, say three or four years down the road, there might be a three or four percent charge left against that. The advisor didn't get paid a second time, but you would be dinged. Okay. So if you had a hundred thousand dollars and you sold, and there's a three percent penalty, you're left with ninety-seven thousand dollars. So the the advisor makes the full five percent up front, uh, and then you're paying out of that out of the MER. And because you only paid the MER for X number of years, for four or five years, and there's still two or three years left, uh, then the penalty associated with the remainder of the redemption schedule was paid by the the client. Uh, it wasn't paid to the advisor. But uh, believe me, the, the mutual fund company didn't lose any money on it. They were gonna they were gonna recoup uh, the amount of money because they paid the advisor up front on on week one. I'm wondering if you could maybe talk about what you would do to level the playing field. Uh, just thinking about uh, your your role as an advocate, uh, doing what you can for individual investors. What measures would you propose to give uh, ordinary investors a fairer shake as they try to deal with uh, these sorts of issues? Well, I try to remove embedded commissions because mm -hmm. there are so many people who think that unless they are personally handing over money to their advisor, mm -hmm. that their advisor is advising them for free and they don't really spend a whole lot of time thinking about it. And it, it's hard for companies to start up. Steady Hand, uh, Tom Bradley, another Canadian who's done a terrific job in educating people about how the investment business works. When he started, he didn't even want to sell through discount brokers. He wanted to sell directly to the public, but that was hard to do. So he, but he wasn't offering any embedded commissions. So it can be done because that company's been around for 20 years and still does a terrific job. Um, so, and the other thing I'd suggest is instead of, and we all know that communicating through written uh, long documents in small print without any even bold or uh, emphasis, is a terrible way to reach the consumer. I'd say the the, uh, the securities commissions and the federal government who are trying to educate people should use a lot more video, a lot more um, uh, graphics, uh, comics. You know, all of us are learning. I, I had lunch with a couple of people from the Ontario Securities Commission at a conference in the fall, and they told me they were using TikTok for some some of their messages because those were the consumers that they wanted to reach. Now, of course, probably the Ontario government can outlaw it as the federal government did. But, um, you know, you go where the people are. You don't try and raise them. You try and go to where they're ready to receive your communications and make it simple, make it easy. And as an instructor, I found that for the beginner investor, it used to be pretty hard to find something that was aimed at them. Now there's loads of things that are aimed at them. There's the individual ETFs that they can buy on their own. There's the all-in-one 
mm-hmm. ETFs that have a balanced portfolio. There's the robo advisors. There's uh, uh, index funds versus index ETFs, and indexing is becoming a big deal, and a lot of people are uh, letting the message out. Another person I like when it comes to indexing is Dan Bordelotti, mm-hmm. Canadian Couch Potato. That was a great um, uh, uh, blog, and then later a podcast. Now he's working as a portfolio manager and still doing indexing, and his book, Reboot Your Portfolio, is really a good book to read. Right. So um, you have to make people more aware of what's going on. And the federal government has great information at Canada.ca money, slash money, but nobody knows about it. It's not readily accessible. It's not advertised much. Uh, You know, if you're looking for balanced sources of communication that don't have any commercial influences, um, you have to go to, you know, either the Ontario government's uh, investor, what's it called, Get Smarter About Money, yeah. or Canada.ca and look for the stuff that's there. I would also say that uh, this is an opportunity to put a plug in for Canadian Money Saver magazine because uh, Canadian Money Saver doesn't take ad- advertisements. It just takes articles from people like me who uh, want to help people understand how capital markets work or how financial planning can be applied to you and things of that nature. And, and it's not it's not uh, fettered by by other commercial concerns that other publications might be might be constrained by. Uh, yes, they do house ads, um, yeah. but that's about it. And um, our podcast, the Money Saver podcast, we are starting to take some ads at the beginning, which usually results in having a very long disclaimer to read up front. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, Canadian Money Saver is one of the few publications in Canada that has survived for like three decades, I think, not always under the same ownership, mm-hmm. but with subscribers paying the rent. Right. No advertising is right. paying the rent. It's all the subscribers who like the publication. Right. It's, it's wonderful. Ellen, thanks so much. I always end with uh, two little segments. The first is called That's Bullshift. And that's where I ask people like you to say, what is it that if, if there was one thing that you would point to that you would want to alert people as a consumer advocate about the financial services industry, what would that be? I'd say um, be skeptical about your bank. You know, the banks have uh, put themselves on every corner of Canadian cities. They advertise as if they're your best friend and they're always out for your best interest. People, I think, in general, think that the banks are way more um, sympathetic to them than they really are. They have no fiduciary duty toward their clients unless they have them in a portfolio manager relationship where the bank does all the stock picking. And that they incentivize their staff to do all kinds of selling which may be uh, quite extraneous to what you've gone in for. And you should never expect your banker to be, you know, only concerned about you because they have a lot of corporate demands to meet if they want to have a career and if they want to have promotion. So okay. treat them like any guy who comes door to door, you know, uh, okay. be since skeptical. I since I don't want to be some crotchety guy who only complains and only gets his guests to complain, there is a second half and that is where we look for something better. So that's shift happens. So if you could find a way to deal with this, how would you actually solve the problem that you just identified a moment ago with banks? Um, I'd say uh, go online. I think in Canada, we're pretty lucky because there are a lot of bloggers mm-hmm. and uh, people who are um, uh, doing um, uh, YouTube's videos or podcasts who are out there really representing 
themselves, how they started out. Like there's a million dollar journey was one of the first. And that guy since retired because he's reached his million dollar level. But Kyle Prevost, who's running it now, is running it from the point of view of, you know, I'm the consumer out there. I'm looking for answers. I'm going to get the best people I can. And I'm going to do it from the consumer point of view, which is, you know, you want to start investing on your own. How do you get started? Do you just go to the bank site and start fooling around? Or do you find some really good sources of information? And there's a lot of people like that. There's um, Boomer and Echo, who's Rob Engen, who's also on the board of Fair Canada. Um, uh, there's there's just some great sites around. There's somebody in Montreal called Hard Bacon, mm. who keeps writing about the best Canadian blog, personal finance bloggers. Jessica Morehouse, you know, uh, Sean Cooper, when it comes to mortgages. There's lots of great people. So don't think of them as, well, they're rank amateurs. They're not. They're giving you the value of their own experience, plus all the comments that they get from readers who really push them to tell the truth and to get different points of view out there. So be open to new contributors and don't say that they're not as credible as the bank because they may be more credible than the bank. There you go. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Ellen. This has been a real pleasure. And it's, it's always nice to speak with someone who I would consider to be a soulmate with regard to consumer advocacy. And you've done so much to help people across the country for so many years. So thank you not only for appearing on the podcast, but also for all you've done over the years. It's, it's, it's wonderful to know you. Thank you. And good luck with the book. I was looking at the back where it looks like you've read a hundred different books on behavioral finance. So you must be quite expert now. And I hope Canadians listen to your message and start changing the way they think. All the best to you. Bullshift, the podcast, was created in support of John DeGuey's book, Bullshift, available now online and in bookstores everywhere. The comments and opinions are those of the author and his guests. They are for informational purposes and should not be construed as investment advice. John DeGuey is an author, public speaker, senior investment advisor, and portfolio manager at Wellington Altus Private Wealth. For more information about John and his books, please visit standup.today. Bullshift, the podcast, is produced by TalkShoe, a division of IOTA.